Welcome to The Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Clay, Communications Specialist. In this episode, Philip Hollingsworth speaks with Kia Caldwell, Associate Professor of African, African American, and Diaspora Studies. In their conversation, they discuss the life of Brazilian human rights activist Marielle Franco and the circumstances that led to her assassination on March 14, 2018. So, Kia Caldwell, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for the chance to be here. You recently co-wrote a statement along with fellow scholars Wendy Muse of New York University, Tiana Paschal of UC Berkeley, Keisha Khan, Y. Perry of Brown University, Kristen A. Smith of UT Austin, and Erica L. Williams of Spelman College. And it was titled, On the Imperative of Transnational Solidarity, a U.S. Black Feminist Statement on the Assassination of Marielle Franco. Can you give us a brief summary of who Marielle Franco was and the circumstances that led to her assassination? Right. So Marielle Franco was really a leading human rights activist, a leading activist for black women, a black feminist from Rio. Um, she was from the favela, a poor community called Mare in the Rio metropolitan area. And she served on the city council from January 2017 until she was killed um, this March, March of 2018. And she was really an incredible figure. I think that people, unfortunately, have learned a lot more about her and the work that she was doing after her death. But she's someone who was from a very humble background, who had been a, a teenage mother, who had worked as a childcare worker who put herself through college and then joined the Rio City Council and was very popular in terms of the community community that she represented as well as similar communities in Rio because there are many favelas in the city of Rio. One of the big things that she was involved with was criticizing the federal intervention that was taking place since the beginning of this year really uh, in terms of the military um, being sent in and occupying favelas in Rio. And this has been an ongoing process for several years. It started even before the Olympics, but it it was heightened during the Olympics in 2016, the Summer Olympics that were in Rio. And essentially these communities have really been under siege um, by the government and by the military police and just police forces in general, and now the military as well. Also, to give background on our statement for people who might be interested in seeing it, it's on the Black Scholars website, uh, theblackscholar.org. And this is a an academic journal that's been around for decades. It's a leading journal in African-American or Black studies. So it is a, our statement is available on their website. And it also was published in the Folia de Sao Paulo on Monday, last Monday. So... April 2nd. And a Spanish version has been circulating Spanish-speaking countries of Latin America. And so what happened in terms of Marielle is that she was criticizing the ongoing violence that's happening in the favelas that's often being perpetrated by the police. And she pointed out that a young man had been killed just a couple of days earlier. And she basically was saying, when will this violence in this kind of war end. When she, the night that she was killed, she was leaving a meeting of young black women and they were talking about ways to dismantle structures 
oppressive structures, racism, sexism, and so forth. So she was very much involved with activism at that level as well. She was a figure who was really speaking out against a lot of the challenging situations that Brazil is facing right now in terms of really a rightward shift and as the increasing police and military presence in the favelas shows really the the oppression that these communities are facing and the violence. And this has been ongoing violence for, for a long time. And as someone from Mare, the community that Marielle grew up in, she was very much aware of what had been happening. And she actually started, to, she became a human rights advocate and activist in 2000 after one of her friends was killed by a stray bullet. In the statement, uh, you and your your co-authors write, she was a threat to the white supremacist, patriarchal, capitalist, imperialist, global social order. But her death is not a sign of strength of this order. Rather, it is a sign of the ever-expanding weakness. Can you elaborate on this? Yeah, I mean, the the term um, white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchal, imperialist, that putting all of those kind of ideas together or systems together is something that black feminist scholar Bell Hooks has done for a long time in, in really linking different forms of uh, discrimination and oppression. Um, but, you know, when we think about what's happening across the world, really, we see that in, in certain ways, people in power are desperate to maintain that power. And they're resorting to all types of forms of violence and, and really oppressive measures and policies to stay in power, whether they're laws, things like having police in these communities. Um, if we think about Brazil, the majority of Brazil's population is of African descent. Mm-hmm. So really policies of extermination and genocide have been perpetrated against uh, African descendant populations in Brazil for a long time. And that's also something that we are trying to call attention to in the statement and to link it to things like Black Lives Matter because the scale of violence is you know, so much greater when we think about Brazil and the number of homicides every year, the number of police homicides. So Black Lives Matter and that sort of sensibility is something that Afro-Brazilians have been thinking about for a long time as well, right. whether or not they use the term Black Lives Matter. The realities of their everyday lives have been um, really shaped by violence in so many ways. So I see, I kind of see this statement not only as a, a call to attention of, of Marielle's life and what she fought for, but also the, the need for a common ground or some conversation, international conversation on these, these issues that are happening here in the United States. Definitely, it's a big issue in Brazil. And just globally, we see this. Just to also give a little bit more background on the statement, we really, my sister co-authors, to use a different type of term as opposed to fellow, but we really, I think, felt compelled as people who've done research in Brazil for a long time to give background on Marielle's life, like you were saying, because many people don't realize that there's such a large black or African descendant population in Brazil. They're not aware of the scale of the violence there. We don't really get the full picture in terms of international news a lot of times in the United States. So people might be seeing different things about Lula now being sent to prison, or maybe they've heard about Marielle, but putting all the pieces of the puzzle together can be harder to do. And so we wanted to express our solidarity with the struggle in Brazil, but also do that from a black feminist perspective and think about 
what Marielle means and meant as a black woman and the struggles that shaped her life as well as the the kinds of struggles that she stood for and and that really ultimately led to her death unfortunately in the statement there's also this imperative or this call to action to organize on a hemispheric and global level ideally what might this look like in practice yeah that's a great question some of that organizing is already happening if we think about um, the movement for black lives and and activists working together across borders and social media a lot of times can really facilitate that and the technology can facilitate that but i think Part of what needs to happen more is for those of us in the U.S. to find ways to become aware of what's happening outside of the U.S. and support those struggles and also to realize in some ways how the U.S. government might might be complicit in what's happening through um, our own government's policies or the fact that the U.S. government might be training police or military, you know, in other countries. That is mentioned in the statement that— right. So really putting pressure also on the U.S. government not to support these kinds of things, not to support the overthrow of democratically elected governments. You know, even Dilma Rousseff's impeachment last year, it's not as if the U.S. said, we don't think this is a good idea, right? And so we've seen Brazil swiftly decline, uh, democracy in Brazil swiftly decline as a result of the impeachment as well. So I think that solidarity, building solidarity movements. But oftentimes, I think the onus is more on those of us in the U.S. because people outside of the U.S. typically know what's happening in the U.S. They're really up on what's happening here, but we don't always know how we can support struggles elsewhere. At the beginning of the statement, there's an epigraph by Audrey Lord, and in bold is the quote, for the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Can you talk a little bit about this notion or this quote, and why is that in bold? Right. Well, this is a powerful statement from Audrey Lord, who was a black feminist poet and writer who passed away in the early 1990s. And I often talk about this essay that she wrote about the master's tools with my students in one of my classes. And, you know, we tried to unpack it, but I I really see it um, in terms of the fact that we can't use the same tools of oppression and divisiveness to dismantle structures of domination and oppression, right? So going back to the idea of solidarity, we can't see change in the world if we continue to be divided, if we, you know, say, well, you live in Syria, so I'm not going to worry about that. Or you live in Palestine. Audre Lorde wrote a lot about how we internalize oppression, and this happens to different people in different ways, but we really sort of have to look within and and also think about how we can change the way we think and behave to actually create a more just society or just world. And so I think, again, for those of us in the United States, We have a certain amount of privilege, even African-Americans do, compared to people of African descent in other parts of the world. So we have to sort of think about how we use that privilege, how we see people in other parts of the world, how we can be their allies in very real ways. This is something we ask all of our guests. What's a book that changed your life? Wow, a book that changed my life. That is a great question. Wow. Um, well, we talked about Audre Lorde in um, 
it wasn't a book, but it just her writings when I was um, an undergraduate. I remember reading her work, and it really piqued my interest in terms of black feminism and what it meant to be a black woman in this country. So I would say Audre Lorde's writings, you know, um, as an undergraduate. But I recently read In the Wake by Christina Sharp, and I, I also found that book to be very provocative. And it... Um, it talks about how we're still living in the wake of slavery oh, okay. and in the afterlife yeah. of slavery um, in this country. And so, I mean, more recently, it was very impactful for me mm-hmm. um, in, a, in a different kind of way. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Thanks. Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.